0: Hi, I'm Anthony Chadwick. Known for my work pioneering online veterinary education, I've teamed up with Argaria Pet Insurance to keep you in the know about the pet profession. We're beginning the very first episode of the Pet Profession podcast with a much debated topic pet life expectancy. Our animals are more than just pets, they're companions, sources of comfort, and as the famous saying goes, man and woman's best friend. Considering limitations on the time we have with a beloved cat, dog, or other companion animal can be emotionally challenging. That's why it's important that vet professionals are able to provide pet owners with accurate and up-to-date information to support them through their ownership journey. For our first episode, we're joined by Dan O'Neill, Associate Professor in Companion Animal Epidemiology at the Royal Veterinary College, London. As the mind behind Vet Compass, a comprehensive database of research into pet health, I can't wait to tap into Dan's wisdom and find the answers to some of the most frequently asked questions about pet lifespan. Agria is proud to fund Vet Compass's valuable work through ring-fenced charitable donations to the Kennel Club. Welcome Dan, it's great to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you very much Anthony, had a wonderful introduction and it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm not so sure about the wisdom though, I think the more time goes by the more I realise I don't know very much but that's the fun of it, we've got lots of questions to ask and answer so thank you very much for this opportunity to chat to your listener.
0: And when I was little, that everybody used to get very frustrated by me because my question was always why. And I think it's such an important question to ask. So I share your thing where you're saying, you know, do we actually have all the answers? But the questions are sometimes more important than the answers, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. The great psychologists of our time say the difference between us, the human species, and other species is curiosity. And that has made our species take over the world. And that curiosity is all built around that simple little word called why. And often, apart from mama, dada, it's the first word a child will say. And during their early childhood, they annoy their parents with why, why, why? And we tend to beat it out of them. And it tends to be just shut up and listen, stop asking why, but that's the essence of a good scientist. We need to keep asking why. So, so Anthony, keep using that word.
0: That's great. I still do. But uh, Dan, as we've already mentioned, you've a lot of involvement with VET Compass. Obviously, not everybody listening will be familiar with that Compass. So can you tell us a little bit about its background and its mission, how it was formed and so on?
1: Oh, it'd be a real pleasure to. This compass is, is my life, has been my life for the past decade. As a first opinion practitioner, I was in practice for 20 years, 22 years. And increasingly over that time, I became more and more frustrated with uh, being in practice and not being able to answer the simple questions clients would ask. You know, do you give antibiotics to dogs with diarrhea? What age do you spay dogs? What's the probability of my bitch dying when she's anaesthetized for her spay? So, about 10 years ago, I, I left general practice working one to one with dogs and cats and their owners, and then moved to university or Royal Veterinary College, where I was lucky to take on a PhD, get offered a PhD with uh, David Church and Dave Broadbelt. And that was building that Compass. So, essentially, what we do is we collect anonymized clinical data from first opinion practices right across the UK. Those data are merged into a single database, and then we just unleash an army of researchers on those data to answer all these questions that we, in first opinion, practice as vets and nurses need to know the answers to. Very simple concept. In reality, doing it is extremely complex, but the theory and the concept is simple, and um, it seems to be working well.
0: It's such an important service, and you know, again, I'd like to thank you for all the work that you doing with it. But let's perhaps move on to address some of the most commonly asked questions surrounding pet life expectancy. Why do you think it's important for vets to know the life expectancy of the animals in their care?
1: Well, this goes back almost to my comment about why I left practice. Clients expect vets to know stuff. And in college, university, we are taught lots of information on very specific and esoteric issues. And We have lots of clinical information on disorders that are often quite rare, but oddly, we don't have a lot of information on disorders that are common, dental disease, anal sac disease, uttis externa, because they tend not to be researched. One of those issues that we tend not to have a lot of information on is life expectancy. And a lot of this is because those pieces of information require lots and lots and lots of data. And research, up until the the existence of Vet Compass, research was based on studies with 10, 20, 30, 100 dogs, maybe, at a referral center. Whereas big data is required to answer life expectancy questions. Vets need to know this sort of stuff because clients, when they're getting an animal, might want to know how long is this breed versus that breed likely to live. Uh, Towards the end of a dog or a cat or a rabbit's life, the clients might want to be um, informed about how much life is left say if they're deciding whether it's time for euthanasia or not so these are really key questions and and they're also key for the reputation of the veterinary profession because if our clients are asking us questions and if we as vets and nurses are saying actually we don't know then you know really is that acceptable when we could know it's just a matter of getting the data
0: and i think very much we're being asked more and more to provide evidence-based medicine. And and so this is the same, really, isn't it? You know, if we're just giving anecdotal information, it's really not very useful.
1: Oh, I'm so pleased you said the evidence-based veterinary medicine words. Uh, It is really key. And this is the whole world that I've now entered in practice. You know, I always felt I had some science. So science that I was taught in college and science that we learn in CPD. But as the years went by more and more and more, I felt I was relying on the art of veterinary medicine. And exactly, as you say, how to answer questions based upon, in my experience. And it it always came across quite well, I think, to clients. But the reality is you're, in effect, just making stuff up. You're trying to remember the last couple of cases you had that were similar to this situation, and then summarizing the information. We've now moved into what is called the evidence-based veterinary medicine sphere. So decisions are made based on our experience, on the client's context but also based on evidence, even though that compass is generating quite a bit of the evidence for first opinion practice. I actually, I'm not even sure that evidence-based veterinary medicine is the right set of words. I think it should be evidence-informed veterinary medicine. So in other words, we're not basing it on the evidence because often there isn't enough evidence or good enough evidence, but the evidence that is there should be informing what we do. And then we tailor our decisions to the precise context of the owner so their financial situation, their family situation, their social situation, and the precise context of the animal itself, and our abilities of veterinary surgeon to fulfil needs. So it's it's more evidences supporting or informing rather than being the true basis of the answers and the decisions we make.
0: Yes, I think you're right because I remember when I did veterinary dermatology and I talked about the art and science of veterinary dermatology because there's no doubt there is art in it as well as science, and so if we become too obsessed with the science and it that's all that matters you know that relationship that we have with the pet and the owner is also incredibly important isn't it and we need to bring some of our empathy and our our art if you like into that part of the uh, of, of the discussion
1: absolutely absolutely and that's the key of being a good first opinion practitioner within vet compass we collect four main types of data the, the majority of the work i do is on first opinion data We also have a data silo of referral information, a data silo of charity information, and then a data silo of emergency out-of-hours information, and they're all very different. And in essence, the big difference I see between the first opinion and the referral is that the referral very much is evidence-based veterinary medicine. And in theory, every animal that's referred should be given the same gold standard workup and should reach the same diagnosis and should have the same treatment because there almost is the current agreed perfect way to treat and manage each disorder yeah first opinion practice is totally different and way more complex referral care in one sense is quite straightforward there are rules it's an algorithm we follow that it's obviously still highly complex to do and lots of knowledge is required but it's it's often factual knowledge first opinion is just so much more complex and you're taking in all the background the finance the social your history with the client you might have known the client for 20 years through five previous animals of that species and this all comes into account and it is very much more of an art but 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 good evidence should be informing what we do. I think it's evidence-informed veterinary medicine in first opinion practice, and probably within referral practice, it genuinely is evidence-based.
0: No, I really like that distinction. It's maybe one of my take-homes from the the podcast is, and when I start hearing this more widely, I remember, Dan, that you were the first one to say, evidence-informed rather than evidence-based, when it becomes more (laughs) mainstream. So it is a really good comment. So I think, you know, you'd agree with me that educating owners about pet life expectancy is something that very much falls under our responsibility, you know, to the community, doesn't it? Because knowing how long different breeds also live will often help people make a decision on taking over a pet as well, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, oddly, oddly, even though you've said the words, and I totally agree with you, Anthony, that the one word that rises hackles along my back is education education kind of smacks of i know something you don't i'm going to tell you you listen and i've kind of learned and this is 20 years in first opinion practice that a much more successful approach is to have a discussion and a sharing of views and yeah. often in that process we may end up being i'm using the part to come here educated just as much as as the client So I often see the evidence sharing process rather than it being an education process going on between veterinary professionals and their clients. But the bottom line is, yes, absolutely, we need to have a strong and a reliable and a robust evidence base when we're sharing information with clients and life expectancy is a key one. The beauty of the life expectancy, this is saying from humans, they say there is nothing more certain than the average or the median, if we're being an epidemiologist, life expectancy of a population, so a large number of animals in this case, and nothing Mm -hmm. more uncertain than the life expectancy of any individual Mm -hmm. animal. And that's the beauty of um, values like life expectancy. We can very reliably predict across a large number of animals what the typical lifespan will be and then that gives clients very reliable number that they can base their decision on so i know i'm taking on this breed and i know in all likelihood i will expect two three five seven ten twelve years and i can plan for that so so you are correct it is really important and up until now We've kind of licked our finger, shoved it in the air and said, yeah, dog lives 12 years. And to be honest, that's not really good enough. It might be correct as a summary figure in one sense, but it's not really good enough. Our clients deserve better from us as veterinary practitioners when it comes to basic stats, such as life expectancy.
0: And I think what Vet Compass has managed to accomplish is help us to give those figures. Is, Is that how you see that Vet Compass can help us? Because obviously before Vet Compass existed, It was more anecdotal and we all had a sense because we saw a lot of dogs and cats coming into practice what a kind of average was. And of course, there was no science in that. But is is that what you think the service Vet Compass offers to vets? It brings much more authority and, and certainty, if you like, to some of those everyday discussions that we'll have with clients.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the services. So within Vet Compass, my idea and David Churches and Dave Broadbust, the idea is that we're making this almost a collaborative project between everyone involved in animal health care. So that's the veterinary professionals, the nurses, receptionists, vets, the owners themselves and the, the researchers, and then some of the downstream users, such as the kennel club. So one of the services we're doing is generating the evidence. Historically, within the academic world, that's generally where the academic world stopped. The goal of historic academics was to generate research and publish it in a journal, and then it stopped. VetCompass, one of the drives that I've had over the past 10 years is to take the next step so every vet compass paper that comes out is followed by a dissemination process so that means a press release that goes out to the press and you may have seen over the past year stories about pugs and bulldogs and french bulldogs and life expectancy and lots of different topics and that sends the message out and wide so it's sharing directly with owners and shaping opinions and views directly we also follow up all our papers with an infographic and they're all available free on the vet Compass website and these are available for owners or for vet practices that summarize an entire paper in one colorful cartoony easy to read series of messages so it's more than just generating evidence it's actually taking the next step and it's sharing that evidence but sharing it without necessarily having a real judgmental view it's sharing it saying this is what evidence says let's think about it but without necessarily saying what's right and wrong because i'm not sure that often exists as a truism mm. every person has their own idea of right and wrong in their own head yeah
0: no it's a good point so this sort of information you know on life expectancy and so on is available on the website that's a place that vet professionals should start to go and I, I think it's a lovely idea with the cartoons because obviously we are all busy and sometimes to read a busy paper you know can take time whereas bringing that to the the finer points in a fun sort of cartoony setup i think is a great way to get the message across
1: yeah yeah it, it absolutely is and also like i'm an old guy so uh, you know i'm not into social media i don't have facebook but that doesn't mean that i don't recognize how communication happens these days and certainly when i was in practice i did not read clinical papers i might flip through the, the record i might read the the conclusion to get the key message i might read the abstract to get a summary but <clears throat> if i wasn't reading the full paper i wouldn't have yeah. understood the methods for example so relying on papers to share messages widely is is foolhardy it might share them with the people in your academic sphere so basically we're trying to look at the world see how people talk and how they communicate and apply our messages in that way the infographics are all um, modular so they're all in sections and they're all long and thin so that they scroll on phones so they're designed for social media either as a full Infographic or to be just broken up into little sections. And those infographics, we then send them to other social media groups like Veterinary Voices with Robin Lowe or Cat the Vet, you know, and suddenly we have an infographic being shared. You know, Cat the Vet has a, a reach of like 2 million listeners, viewers, whatever we call them on social media. So this is really how we're reshaping how we think about the world and The fundamental message is these data come from veterinary practices the data are entered by um, veterinary nurses by veterinary surgeons and ultimately this is the veterinary profession giving back to animal welfare in a way it never could have done before it's just a new way of shaping animal welfare
0: wouldn't it be great
1: to have all the pets you see insured with lifetime pet insurance we're here to help you with just that Our free pet insurance solution is designed for you by your peers. Hundreds of independent UK practices work with us already. We pay 97% of claims and offer lifetime only dog,
0: cat, rabbit and equine pet insurance. For all veterinary professionals, there's an amazing staff discount of 20% off your premium for dogs, cats and rabbits
1: year after year, so even your own pets can benefit. Our experienced field team would love to take you through a free demo so you can see for yourself how easy it is to get started with Agria. Visit argriapet.co.uk forward slash podcast demo to book yours now.
0: It is so important and we need to get these big data sets to be able to make really meaningful comparisons and so on. And of course we have all the vet practices that can actually feed into this. I think they, they almost call it citizen science, don't they? But maybe this is veterinary citizen science. So, yeah, no, it's it's brilliant. I, I suppose to flip the subject on its head a bit, I've seen questions online. Do you think that pets' impact in people's lives can actually help to increase people's life expectancy as well? Any 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 thoughts on that as a a non medic, but as a as a vet?
1: That's actually a really interesting question. So if I was still in practice, I'd answer that question and I'd answer it with absolute certainty based on my personal experience of two people or whatever that had pets and I knew their life expectancy. The new me, I've been reborn in Vet compass, the new me is evidence-informed. And I would look at this question and I would say, well, I don't have evidence on this. I'm not sure a study has been done on it. And even if the study was done, It would be limited by a huge bias in that maybe the people who live longer are more likely to get pets and keep their pets rather than the other way around. The one thing we can say, though, from all the evidence is that pets do have the power, not so much to increase human life expectancy in terms of years, but human life expectancy in terms of happiness. And ultimately, that's what all humans strive for. It's Mm. to be happy. And that means to be contented, satisfied with life, to have a rich social experience. And that's what pets give us. Mm. The the interaction directly with pet. And you make more friends. You, you, you know, you just have to take your dog out for a walk and you, you you know, you get that feeling straight away. And there's lots of evidence on that. I'd love to do the study about actual life expectancies per se. So maybe that's one we just add to the list for new studies. Thank you.
0: But no, I agree, Dan. I think, you know, there is so much evidence that just the simple action of stroking a cat or a dog actually helps to reduce hormone levels and make you more calm it causes all levels and things, isn't it? So the evidence there is pretty good, I think, isn't it?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Which is one of the reasons why we have, you know, animals, pet dogs going into hospitals. We have um, you know, people with learning difficulties, mental health difficulties, just people who are lonely living alone, you know, having animals either free time or um visiting. Lots of research to show that it brings down blood pressure, we get rises of oxytocin. We're just happier. And we just have to look at the flip side. We're, you know, I presume most of the listeners are working in practice, certainly when I worked in practice, the most devastating event in most people's lives for maybe that year or five years or 10 years was the loss of their loved mm. pet so it's often not until the thing is taken away that we realize how valuable it is yeah so I, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that pets have the power to increase human life expectancy of happiness i think that's the one that absolutely we can take
0: to the bank no that's brilliant have you got any sort of last thoughts what's the most frequently asked questions from vets regarding life expectancy is it a question that vets are asking you often to give them more information i could answer it in two ways right so the first way
1: is just what do we mean by life expectancy and then i'm going to come to a specific question that i do get asked a lot so life expectancy and historically life expectancy was how long does a dog live or a rabbit live or a cat live and we've answered those yeah so 14 years for a cat 11.2 for a dog 4.3 for a rabbit but that's an average over all of that species we then break them down by breed and we've done that with dogs with cats the data are most cats are not of a breed most cats are just cross breeds muggies yeah. and certainly within dogs most dogs are of a breed So if we're including Labradoodles and all these lads as breeds, we're up at 80%. So we have done that and there is huge variation. So those data are there, but the new frontier on life expectancy, we did it this year with a new paper is life tables. And that's not reporting life expectancy just as an average overall within a breed or within a sex, but it's reporting it within a breed or a sex from a specific point in time. So we can say a dog lives 11.2 years but if my dog is already six years of age, he's likely to live far beyond 11.2 because he has already made it to six. And this was one of the, the new frontiers that we had tackled and, and published on this year. And that means, say, if I'm going to a rehoming center and I'm rehoming a, a nine-year-old dog on average, I can expect more than two years because he's already met it to nine. So that's the extra complexity and information that we have on life expectancy. And there is a need maybe for veterinary surgeons and veterinary nurses to become more higher levels of literacy in terms of life expectancy to take that on board the second bit is the specific question you ask so when we worry about things there's two types of things we worry about there's things that we can do nothing about and things we can do something about or we can blame somebody so somehow you know if a train doesn't turn up and it's because you know there was loads of ice and it's really cold weather somehow we kind of accept that it's terrible but the weather is bad if we get a message saying the train isn't turning up because uh, the driver didn't get out of bed that morning, we're going to be really annoyed. So, and this is the difference between whether we can blame something, usually human or not, within the veterinary world, where this applies is the risk of death from something we've done. And the typical one everyone worries about is anesthesia. We take in a beloved, treasured pet to carry out an anesthetic procedure, and the animal dies. And it haunts most vets and most vets will remember the two, three, four, five, six animals mm. that that's happened to them in the career. We published a paper um, about two or three months ago answering that question. And this is wonderful because it means that veterinary surgeon veterinary nurse can now point decline towards these data, there was 157,000 anesthetic and sedation events within the study. And within that study, we were able to show that the probability of death within 48 hours is 10 per 10,000 dogs that were sedated or anesthetized. So it is incredibly low. And if that procedure was for neutering, so typically healthier dogs, it is 0.6 per 10,000 So again, this perception from the clients that it's a 50-50 toss of the coin, whether my dog being spayed or being castrated is going to come back alive. Mm -hmm. We now have numbers we can show the clients. The flip of that is we can also show there is 0.6 per 10,000. So if that dog happens to be that extremely rare Mm anesthetic debt, we have evidence to say this does happen. It's rare, but it does happen. Mm -hmm. And that probably is the most frequent life expectancy question i get directly from veterinary professionals because it's the one that they worry most about an old dog dying of cancer is terribly sad but it's not the vet's fault yes. whereas um a lot of anesthetic that's vets, vets kind of take it as as if yes. it's their fault it isn't their fault but it doesn't stop us feeling guilt
0: this is where we have the worry sometimes you and i are possibly old enough to remember when we used to anesthetize a lot of rabbits with halothane and uh, it stopped me doing castrates and spays because they were such a a risk, whereas anesthetics like isoflurane are a lot safer. And I'm sure you've got some nice statistics on that as well.
1: Exactly. Exactly. As time has gone by, it's got much, much, much safer. But yes, back in the early days when I first graduated, um, you trembled when you knew you had to do a rapid castration or a neutering. But even then, we just didn't have the data. But even then, if we yes. had the data, at least we could explain, we get clients to sign a consent form to say that they have been informed of all the risks. Well, they weren't really being informed of all the risks because yeah. they weren't being given the data on the probabilities of death, of a bad reaction. So now we have the data from Vet Compass, you know, and we have this lovely wraparound message that this is the veterinary profession caring for your animal in ways that go beyond just a one-to-one care I'm giving to your animal today it's the entire veterinary profession as as a collegiate body working together to provide evidence such that the care we we give gets better and better and better
0: Dan, it's a great place to finish you know one of our value words at webinar vet is kai's and you know we improve as we go we get better and better and that's all based on on data and so the data that you're collecting for us is is essential and, and much needed. And uh, as you say, it helps us to improve as a profession in a collegiate way by sharing information and, and maybe sharing you know, errors as well as the good things that we do because we learn from both ways, don't we?
1: Yeah, exactly. Some people would say you learn more from the errors because when something goes well, it means it's gone well. But you don't know particularly which were the key bits of it going well that made it go well. When something goes wrong, we can drill down into it, identify the issue, and then resolve it. So errors, they're just part of life and living. And certainly within Vet Compass, as over the past decade developing this, you know, I've gone down lots of blind alleys, but I've always learned from it. And that's really what Vet Compass is there. It's there to get the summary information on the diagnoses we're making, the treatment we're giving, the outcomes that we can expect. And it just helps us all to know what our colleagues out there are doing, how they're doing it, and what they're achieving. It's not saying, I hate that word gold standard. VET Compass is not about gold standard. That might exist in, in a, a referral um, world, but it doesn't exist in the first opinion world. It's contextualized care or pragmatic care. Mm. And that's what VET Compass is providing good information and good benchmark information on that.
0: Dan, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom, the words we started at the beginning. I think it's uh, really good that maybe some of the whys that I've got you're, you're helping to answer, which is also good, sating my curiosity, but hopefully not completely. Um, where can listeners keep up to date with all things Vet Compass?
1: The easiest way is to just go onto the Vet Compass website. There's no firewalls, there's no secret places or passwords needed. You just go to RVC, Vet Compass. On that, we have all the papers. They're all published open access. So you can have all the papers, all the infographics, there's little videos on there. There's even data sets for people who are doing projects. And lots of students all over the world are using these data sets for their projects. So lots and lots and lots of resources.
0: Dan, thank you once again. Really enjoyed chatting to you and uh, look forward to speaking again soon.
1: Thank you very much, Anthony. And obviously, thank you to Agria Pet Insurance and the Kennel Club Charitable Trust for the wonderful support that you give to Vet Compass, uh, both in direct funding support, but also in helping us to direct the, the research and the questions that we ask of these data. It's everybody working together that makes this all such a success. Thank you.
0: Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast leave a rating and review, and let us know if you've got a burning question you'd love for us to discuss in a future Pet Profession episode. You can also follow Argria on its social channels at Argria Pet Insurance and join our Argria Facebook group for the veterinary community to keep participating in the conversation. Stay tuned for our next episode when we'll be discussing another tough topic the animal welfare assessment grid and the difficult decisions surrounding pet euthanasia with the help of another expert guest.